organizations around the globe. Amid a pandemic, Black Lives Matter protests, news layoffs and furloughs, the world's behemoth broadcaster, the BBC, pledged about 160 million U.S. dollars last July to flip the script on its mostly white programming. A few months later, the D.C. public radio station WAMU voted unanimously to unionize its staff. Then in came producers of the business show Marketplace from American Public Media, pushing for a union too. The reckoning that has been long overdue has finally come to bear in American society. 2020 was the year that forced Americans from all walks of life to pay attention to a movement and have some tough conversations about race. The question is, will those conversations lead to any real change in 2021? Already established media unions have been turning up the pressure for real change on the DEI front. Diversity, Diversity, equity, and inclusion. So how's it going? Has any progress been made? The State of the Unions 2021. This is Beyond the Newsroom a space for innovators and independent storytellers looking to shake things up in the world of media. I'm Renata Sago. And I'm Crystal Chavez. In September 2020, the union at NPR released a long list of demands. It called for executive bonuses to be tied to employee representation of people of color, requirements for more diverse hiring pools, career development for junior employees, stepping up tracking of the race and ethnicities of sources and so on and so on i don't want i don't want to jinx us but right now there is no construction outside my window and my toddler is quiet so fingers crossed that's one of npr's shop stewards camilla dominoski i asked her how are things going since those dei demands released in september Momentum is is a hard thing to keep up, and <laughs> heaven knows a lot has happened um, over the last few months in in our news organization. Dominoski says management has been supportive of the broad diversity goals, but no surprise. The sticking point is in the specifics. We made our our demands really concrete and specific for for a reason. Along the way, there there have been pledges and commitments that that didn't lead to to follow through and we really wanted to be concrete and specific so that we could come back and point and say yes there there was progress here but how long can people wait for progress in the late 70s a task force found the public broadcast system was asleep at the transmitter when it came to serving listeners who are black asian latino and native american ask any poc bipoc journos whatever term you want to use in public media and they'll tell you npr still hasn't put the public in public radio and while i'm not holding my breath dominoski's hopeful i think there's no question that NPR in 10 and 20 years will look and sound and be different than it is now, just as the way it is now is different than the way it was 10 or 20 years ago. Do I think that it'll be all that I want it, like <laughs> all that I desperately want NPR to be? Um, I mean, I, I, I think we're going to move toward that. I think it is it is slow. It's it's hard. Dominoski says the union's demand stems from work that's already been done and they're not the final goal. There's something that my dad said to me once that I've 
I've been thinking about a lot. Um, and it was, he said that the, that identifying the problem is not the same as living the solution. She says living the change has to be done again and again and again over time. Okay, so we're hearing what she's saying. The public and public radio is missing. What's her background? Yeah, good question. I love what her dad said, but it's also important to know Dominoski's coming from a privileged perspective. She's never experienced mm. racial discrimination at NPR. She's white, a quarter Filipino. Okay. This is who NPR put forward to talk to us about the diversity demands. Dominoski mm. ran for shop steward during the Me Too movement after the Michael Oreskes controversy. That's the ex-head of news um, who was placed on leave back in 2017 after the accusations that that he sexually harassed two women looking to get jobs at the New York Times when he was working there. Have you checked his Twitter? After all of that, he's got a pinned tweet up about getting more women in coding. Yeah, yeah, I saw that. Thanks to you. And interestingly, someone commented on that pin. They said... Oh. Had, had he written a statement about the sexual harassment allegations? And if so, why wasn't that his pinned tweet to make mm. it easier for people to find? Hmm. And that could be where a union comes in, really, holding present and past employees accountable on all fronts. Someone whose job it is to go to bat for workers is Mary Cavallero. I've been doing this a long time, you know, I been sitting at a lot of negotiating tables. She oversees the National Broadcast News and Information Division for SAG-AFTRA. She's been doing union work for more than 15 years. I think what we're seeing right now is a, um, a new spirit of uh, interest uh, and, uh, and really concern uh, as, as the media industry has evolved that you know, those terms and conditions of employment, people's work lives, how it affects their personal lives and their families, uh, is not left behind in this media evolution. That evolution includes more and more digital and social media work bleeding into off time with a news cycle that never ends. If, you know, if you, you have this tool in your hand that you use for so many things, and if you're a news person, and you see breaking news now, you can go live at any time, or you can tweet at any time. And the employers are expecting you to have a presence on those various platforms. Lately, the union's been working on the needs of people working from home, obviously through a pandemic that's lasting longer than some expected. And so yeah, with a union, at least workers have someone to turn to, to advocate for them. There's power in numbers. But what about for smaller organizations with no union? People might be scared to even say the word union at their station to put a target on their back in an industry where job security is never guaranteed. Right. Renata, remember when we were at a small station in Orlando, we had lunch with an NPR reporter who was encouraging us to look into unionization. I think we were talking about pay, and I just remember laughing. Like, <laughs> we have a small station budget, small station politics. <laughs> I remember back in 2017 when we were doing all the mass shooting coverage, coming into a newsroom talking about, you know, let's start a union. I want to start a union. And people were like... That was actual live footage. I can't believe you say that. <laughs> I think we had like, what, eight people in the newsroom? Yeah. 
it's a touchy topic with such a small team. The only person who did agree with the union idea was an intern who was unpaid. (laughs) Uh, I'm sure people at small stations across the country feel what we're saying. Yeah, smaller local stations have such different needs. I mean, some some barely have the resources to laminate a press badge, you know, but you walk into the NPR building in D.C. and you could see the money there. That's why union organizing at the national level could have a trickle-down approach. Yeah, NPR's had its union for more than 40 years, and more than 500 journalists make up the union organized through SAG-AFTRA. NPR shop steward Camilla Dominoski talked about how she benefited from joining an already established union and how those right now that we see are doing the work of trying to organize from the ground up. She said they should know they're not only doing this for themselves and their peers, but for future employees who will be grateful for the work they did. And I can't help but think of PRX and whispers around here and there that they're thinking or looking into unionizing there wait whispers is this some tea i don't know i don't know if i'm gonna get in trouble i don't know if i was even supposed to say that last year the shit hit the fan at prx when a black woman quit the organization she left at the height of the pandemic no job lined up because she said she'd had enough she wrote a letter to her co-workers about why she left and that letter went public and in it she said she'd experienced racism there And I'm talking somebody, you know, her hair being touched, all of these things. And that there were other black women who had quit for the same reasons. Now, the head of PRX, Carrie Hoffman, responded with a letter entitled Moving Forward. In it, she said she was sorry about what happened and she pledged to do better. The type of apology statements we see all too frequently now, they kind of have like the same words, like even Justin Timberlake's. (laughs) That letter just added to this whole movement that's been taking place. And now there's this let's make public media anti-racist effort uh, with Celeste Headley, well-known in pub media, heading that up. So we've been talking about employees in newsrooms up until now. But there's also thousands of writers and producers and hosts and graphic designers and all of these things out here who might contract with these institutions and not have the same benefits as a union. It's an adventurous and cruel world that independents live in. You are responsible for getting your own insurance. You have to have your own accountant or be your own accountant and legal protection. Now, there are informal and formal unions around to make sure people have what they need. And one of them is the Freelancers Union. It's a group of more than 500,000 independent workers across the world. And it's got its own insurance company for freelancers. Rafael Espinal runs the union. I spoke with him. The biggest issue uh, that freelancers are, are facing because of the pandemic is the, the lack of work. You have folks who, depending on certain industries, provide them with a steady workflow. A lot of those industries uh, are suffering themselves because of, you know, mandated closures, because of downsizing. It was already hard for freelancers before a pandemic. And then in February, Pointer released a comprehensive list of journalists, furloughs, and layoffs across the U.S. and other parts of the world. Did you see that list? I saw it, yes. And it's crazy. Some of these media organizations have completely shut down, or they've been bought out, or they've cut their distribution. Raphael, with the Freelancers Union, has got a background in organizing in New York. 
When the pandemic first hit the U.S., he joined a group of lobbyists to make sure that independent contractors would be eligible for unemployment benefits. To date, freelancers in the U.S. have been able to receive these benefits. For people working project to project, there's there's just a lot of precarity when you're not getting that consistent newsroom paycheck. I mean, sending an invoice can become an assignment in itself. Here's Rafael. It is no secret that one of the major, major challenges of freelancers and independent workers have at the end of the day of completing a task is getting paid on time. You know, there have been many instances in which clients uh, wouldn't pay uh, the freelancer within the net of 30 days. Or one excuse we hear a lot is that the contract has got has lost in the shuffle, which is why the accounting department took a long time to pay a freelancer. Net 30 can definitely turn into net what the hell. And it's harder these days to do much about your money as a freelancer because it's not like you can walk on over to the accounting office when you're remote. Right. You just have to send reminder emails and wait, wait for that email response. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. There's the big picture thinking that you have to deal with, too. Things like protecting intellectual property. I mean, it's just so much there. Definitely takes strength and conviction in what you're doing. Yes. Yes. Here's Rafael. No matter how you identify yourself, every independent worker at the end of the day is resilient and resourceful. I think that that's what it takes to be independent, truly independent, and be able to go out on your own. And it takes a lot. Of, it takes a lot of courage. Uh, so I would say that uh, resourceful, resilient, and and courageous is what it is. And now for a little segment we're calling Newsroom Confessionals. Move the red curtain aside and enter the booth. Tell us about that one time at the morning news meeting or that one conversation with your editor. It's okay. Your secret is safe with us. Tell us a little story. Maybe something like this sounds familiar to you. I am so f***ing tired of these emails at all times of the day coming from my news director. Like, she has no understanding that the news cycle goes on and on. But we're in a pandemic. I look at my inbox and she's emailing me three, four, five times. She's doing this unchecked too. It's hard to even seriously address this because we're still working remote. No one's brought up a union yet. Oh, it's tough. It's real out here. Do you have a story that you want to share? Want to get a load off your chest and vent? Send us your newsroom confessional to doyouhoney at gmail.com. Yes, we've got resources for you on your courageous journey, whether it's inside of a newsroom or beyond. Find us on Twitter and Instagram at btnhoney. We've got links for you. Support for Beyond the Newsroom comes from Google and PRX. Yes, special, special thanks to you for listening. Until next time, keep doing you, honey.